Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Martellaro, and this week my guest is astrophysicist Dr. Brian Keating. Brian, welcome. Hey, it's great to be back, John. Thank you so much. You've been on the show before. This is your second appearance. You were on in April of 2018, about a year and a half ago. And That's we right. had a great time. <laughs> yeah, I did too. Uh, for the listeners, uh, for those of you who may not have caught the first show with Dr. Keating, I will introduce him. He is an astrophysicist at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Science at the University of California, San Diego. Your specialty is cosmology, and you are the father of the original BICEP project, uh, which we will talk about, and is the subject of your book now in paperback. And so that new book is, uh, as I said in paperback, it's the Losing the Nobel Prize, the story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. Cool. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, you've had a kind of fascinating career. I wanted, before we get really rolling, I wanted to ask you about, as I always do with my guests, about how you became an astrophysicist. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, I, I used to joke I did it for the money. Uh, our, <laughs> but now I say, you know, I've gotten very many comments on, on uh, philosophy and the uh, inevitable connection between theology and cosmology. And I say, you know, part of my original plan was to become a philosopher, but I was just bewildered by the number of job opportunities that I would have. So <laughs> decided I would go into something with a more, you know, constrained opportunities. Uh, it was really something I never thought I could do. I think I mentioned last time, you know, it's like being a wizard. Uh, who's going to pay you to do this? Uh, who's going to pay you to be an ice cream taster? It, it's something I would, you know, I hope you don't tell our governor, Gavin Newsom, you know, I would do it for free, <clears throat> but they're kind enough here in the state of California to pay me to do it. And you know what the best thing is? I, I really have always been a people person. I always wanted to interact with people. I can't, couldn't stand being alone. I worked in restaurants. I worked in moving companies. And I was always very gregarious as a kid. And so I wanted to do something where I could be exercising my you know, kind of extroverted side. And I didn't realize that as a scientist, you could do that, you know, because what's the old joke? Usually it's about engineers, but, you know, how do you know if an engineer is extroverted? You know, he or she looks at your shoes instead of their own when they talk. <laughs> so it's not really the uh, stereotype for scientists, but being a professor brings me in contact from people. You know, I was talking with a, kid, a student of mine from India, another student, you know, who's in South Af from South Africa. I mean, where else do you get, you know, literally around the world? I hosted a scientist from China last week, uh, another one from Cleveland. I mean, <laughs> you couldn't get farther apart, literally, you know, China and Cleveland, basically. And uh, it was just, it's just such a, a blessing of a, of a profession that I get so much joy out of doing that, you know, unfortunately, the negative sides of it which I didn't anticipate as a kid. You know, as a kid, I thought, astronomer, cool. I'll be on a telescope every day. Sitting alone and at night in a telescope in the dark and the cold from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. <laughs> I would have preferred that to being on a telecon from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., which is what I find myself. So different kind of tele, but, uh, but nevertheless, it's a great profession. So it's great when uh, astronomers are professors and inspiring to their students because so many professors I've seen, not all of them, but many of them are sort of feeling under pressure, under the gun, a little bit morose. And it's hard for them to be expansive and to be excited and to really embrace the students and inspire them. And it's a special gift to be able to create a, a vision for the majesty of the universe and to inspire students to study astronomy. 
Yeah, you know, I say, I mean, a lot of your audience are, you know, people that are entrepreneurial, that are, you know, tech savvy, that have created or worked in companies from, you know, maybe early startup. I, I know you've, you've had a vast, you know, array of experiences in the tech field. And I always say, it's kind of like, you know, you're a small business person to be a professor. I mean, I've got payroll, I've got employees, I've got travel, I've got, you know, I don't, I don't make any profit. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't sell, make any widgets. I have a couple of patents to my name, but, but nevertheless, um, it's, it's not really, you know, something that you make a profit on every sale. Uh, you know, we make it up in volume, but, but on the other hand, most entrepreneurs have all those same responsibilities, but then on top of that, for professors, we have to teach 20 to 40 hours a week. I mean, uh, on paper, that, that you know, in my beginning years as a young faculty member, it was more than a full-time job to be a professor. Um, and so there are certainly challenges, especially with young people. And that's in part why I've gotten such, you know, satisfying feedback on losing the Nobel Prize, my, my book, is that, you know, young professors will tell me that it changed their life. It affected their life in a, in a very positive way. And and I view that with great pride because I think mental health issues and and science and and self care and and so forth these are very important things and overlooked most of the time by professors because we feel like we have so many other things to do to get tenure and everything else. You're one of the few people who uh, openly talks about these things, and I admire you for it. It takes a lot of courage to write that book and to talk about some of these issues. Let's get into the book. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is uh, the, we discussed when it came out in hardback the, um, losing the Nobel Prize the story of cosmology, ambition and the perils of science's highest honor and it starts with your fathering of the um, bicep experiment an experiment that was designed to look at the polarization of the cosmic microwave background left over, for, that's the microwave radiation left over from the Big Bang so tell me about the, the what was at stake, what inspired you to, to, to do the experiment, what the experiment was done, designed to prove? Well, I always say, you know, I'm ashamed, but, but you know, not, not entirely humiliated to say that, you know, part of the motivation that I had when I was thinking about this was to answer one of the biggest questions in all of science, not just in astronomy, which is how did the universe begin? And part of that motivation, in addition to the scientific complement of reasons, was I wanted to win a Nobel Prize. You know, I've told you this, John, in the past, that I had a, my father was a great scientist and, and mathematician. Uh, and yet he never won a Nobel Prize, and, and I was very competitive with him, and he with me. And I, and I talk about our relationship and kind of what it's like to be, uh, you know, the son of a, of a great luminary and live in his shadow and then want to eclipse that by literally winning a Nobel Prize. Uh, so uh, luckily that, that, you know, affliction will, will end with me, you know, because my kids know, you know, where the real priorities are and my ideological kids, my, my, my graduate students and, and precious, you know, undergraduates that, that I have the honor of mentoring know that there are greater things than the Nobel Prize. <clears throat> and yet I did want to peer back the curtain, peel back the curtain on the early universe and know what happened at the moment of creation. Was there a single moment of creation? Uh, or is the universe, as many, you know, philosophical philosophers and and theologians have thought about for millennia now is there a preceding universe are there parallel universes either in space or in time uh, 
that exist that complement and accompany our universe in some sense through space-time. What could be a bigger thing to study? What could be more fascinating thing to endeavor to understand? And so that precipitated, along with the influence of a, a great theoretical cosmologist by the name of Mark Kamiankowski at uh, Johns Hopkins University now, though he was at Caltech when I was there, and he inspired me through some of his writings to uh, to pursue the, the construction not of a massive telescope, like my colleagues are planning, like the 30-meter diameter telescope or the, you know, 1,000-foot diameter telescopes or, you know, these huge, huge telescopes that the Chinese and the Americans and others have built, but rather a tiny, tiny telescope, a 12-inch diameter telescope, as a matter of fact, that could potentially take human beings back to the very beginning of time by virtue of the fact that it was looking at the oldest light in the universe. And that oldest light does not originate from time equals zero, if indeed time had a beginning, as Stephen Hawking and others uh, purported that it did. Uh, but, but nevertheless, this ancient light originates about 380,000 years after the uh, origin of the elements, which is really most of what we can say we know for sure about the Big Bang is that it produced elements. But was it the singularity? Was it the beginning of time? That we don't know yet. But my experiment endeavored to find that. And indeed, it still continues to this day, despite the obvious implication of the title of the book, that we lost the Nobel Prize, which means we were not, quote-unquote, successful in revealing the instantaneous onset of the universe's birth or creation or however you want to describe it. And uh, and yet the quest continues. And so I think it's uh, it's just a fascinating thing that by using the oldest light in the universe, you may be able to reveal the properties of other universes or perhaps the conditions of our own universe prior to its uh, its fusion of the first elements. Now just for clarification, this old light has been redshifted into the microwave frequencies. Yeah, so it's the byproduct of nuclear fusion, which uh, you know typically you'd associate with incredibly high temperatures, and those temperatures were indeed quite substantial, tens of millions of degrees above absolute zero. And over time, as the universe expands, like when you spray your keyboard with a keyboard cleaner, the can gets cold. You know, the rapid ex- expansion is a co- produce a cooling effect that reduces the temperature of the light, this ancient light, from from you know perhaps 10 million Kelvin all the way down to 3 Kelvin today as the universe has expanded in size by almost an inconceivable uh, amount in all directions. Is it the fabric of the space that is expanding, or is it the items within the space-time that are moving apart? Well, so in the case of photons, which are the ancient, most ancient relics in some sense that we can use with optical telescopes or microwave telescopes, they are diluting as you know the space expands, the space-time itself expands, and as you know, points and events get separated by greater and greater absolute, what are called proper distances. And then, so, but in addition of a photon, as the photon is traveling and the fabric is expanding, it also experiences a, a weakening of its energy, diminishing of its energy, and characteristic lengthening of its wavelength. This is the so-called tired light. Well, it's um, well. The tired light was an explanation of why we saw that, based on essentially that that as the universe had certain geometric properties, as these photons traveled these vast distances in a non-expanding universe, if I could recall correctly, uh, but by virtue of these incredible distances and interactions along the way, the light would be tired. It would lose its energy and it would increase in wavelength. That model is discredited, but in the in the current way that we understand uh, the expansion 
expansion of the universe, it's not that you know individual galaxies are getting bigger or planets are getting bigger. People, oh, I might be getting bigger as I continue to <laughs> eat, but uh, but but nevertheless, that this distances, the proper distance, is increasing between all observers in the universe beyond a certain distance where we're gravitationally attracted to say the Andromeda galaxy, for example. So, how does the linear polarization of the of this old light? Give us insight into the Big Bang. So, if you look at the ocean through a pair of ordinary sunglasses, uh, you would see the light diminished in intensity, but you'd still see the glare, and you might not be able to see finer details on the surface of the ocean, say, um, because of this reflected light uh, from the sun. But if you use polarized sunglasses, the polarization, the film that makes these glasses uh, polarization filters, blocks out. One of the uh, modes of oscillation of light called its horizontal polarization, and by suppressing it allows your eyes behind these filters to see deeper into the water and see features that your eye would be overwhelmed with the glare otherwise. So in, the, in a sense, polarization tells you about two things. It tells you about the properties and distribution of matter, and it tells you about how light last interacted with that matter before it came to your eyeball. So in the case of microwaves from the Big Bang... Ooh, that's interesting. Tell- it last interacted... Yeah, uh, polarization. So all, all scattering processes depend on... Um, the the material that's bouncing light off of it and something about the light itself, but polarization gives you an extra uh, um, uh, uh, two bits of information by virtue of it having two different modes or states of polarization, horizontal and vertical, or circular left and circular right. But in the case of this type of interaction I'm describing, it's linear polarization. And so that polarization traces the distribution of light and the distribution of matter. And so what it could potentially enable us to do, I realized with help from my colleagues at Caltech and elsewhere in 2001, was to reveal the properties of the light as it left the early photon baryon matter and energy plasma, the cosmic primordial soup, when it did perform its last interaction 13,800,000,000 years ago. And that would encode and encrypt not only the amount of matter and energy – but what was the actual source that caused the matter and energy to agglomerate a little bit more here, a little bit less there. And that would owe, in principle, to the presence or absence of what are called gravitational waves. So these are waves of gravity analogous to waves of light that trace themselves not to the motion of electronic charges, as light does, but to the motion of the fabric, essentially, of space-time being perturbed as matter accelerates. So light waves and this podcast, you know, the signals, radio waves, etc., they are born of the fact that charges oscillate up and down, and to go from going up to going down means you decelerated and then accelerated. And so, too, in that process, that creates electromagnetic waves or electromagnetic radiation. In the case of gravity, when you have matter in motion that accelerates, that's not constant just sitting there and moving at a constant velocity, such as two black holes coming together uh, and crashing together to make a a giant black hole, even bigger than the two by themselves, or either one of the two, rather – then that process creates incredible amounts of gravitational energy that we could potentially detect via this specific type of curl mode or B-mode polarization if we were to observe it in the ancient light of the universe called the CMB, or cosmic microwave background. So you thought you found it, but fill us in on what happened. 
Yeah, so the um, the discovery that we made in um, on St. Patrick's Day 2014, uh, announced from the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard University uh, in Cambridge, they uh, the discovery which I uh, which I played a big role in, but was not participating in this press conference, uh, was that we had detected this reverberations of space time via the observation of this B mode polarization. And so we claim that we observed it and that, to, for all intents and purposes, our best analyses indicated that it originated with the, with the inflationary epoch. So the inflationary epoch is a hypothesized, extremely early universe event, approximately a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the universe's origin. And that period of it would, would have resulted in an extreme acceleration and expansion of the universe far faster than it's accelerating now by you know order tens of orders of magnitude that acceleration and and the concomitant you know presence of matter provide those two ingredients that I said were necessary to produce gravitational waves namely matter that accelerates and moves through space time it also could have produced fluctuations in the in what's called the inflaton field which is like the Higgs boson or something like that, which is a special type of quantum field that has fluctuations that can then uh, cause reverberations in space-time. And that could have then produced gravitational waves, which then persist to the 380,000-year formation of the CMB, and in so doing, perturb it and shake it up in such a way to produce these polarization pattern called B-mode polarization. And that's what we claim we'd observed. <clears throat> Almost instantaneously, the world exploded in you know applause and immediate you know whispers of not only the Nobel Prize but of us having made the greatest discovery in addition of human knowledge since science began. You know, just the superlatives were really, and these weren't just you know crackpot. These were you know, eminent scientists at the world's top institutions. <clears throat> so, in addition to the more prosaic matters of the Nobel Prize. Which, as I mentioned, were part of my, you know, candid uh, <laughs> admission to want to create a project worthy of of something like this was was a big deal to me, as a young scientist in my late twenties and early thirties. So, um, the discovery was not to be because we actually ended up admitting in the paper that there was a tiny, tiny, tiny remote chance that the polarization signal we saw was not entirely due to the presence of these waves of gravity, but could be mimicked by grains of dust in the Milky Way galaxy. So in other words, something astronomical in that it exists in our galaxy and it's not on Earth, and it's not like something on our lens cap of our telescope, <laughs> but, uh, but it exists in the galaxy. And we would need to get rid of that signal in order to have a pristine view back to the ancient universe that lies, you know, in the in the distance of you know 13 billion years ago. So uh, it turned out that, as I describe in the book, how we came to make the announcement and the different influences that that were upon us, including myself, and then how that uh, that result essentially had to be retracted because we did uh, end up observing what we now consider to be predominantly dust, not not the gravitational wave signature that we saw in the first place. And I point out, you know, how often this occurs in science when you want to see something so badly because you know the implications are, among other things, you may get more research funding, you may get more attention, you may indeed win the Nobel Prize, and and how that influences some of the pressure 
that in addition to the teaching and travel and research and everything else I mentioned before, is a very real and, and pernicious effect on many scientists. Is that today. called confirmation bias? Yeah, so scientists suffer from all those same proclivities as, as biases and prejudices as any other human being. And one of them is that we tend to agree with data that agrees with what we already conceived and, and previously held. And so we're confirming data uh, that confirms our hypothesis, rather, and we're discarding data that's discrepant. And that's a natural tendency that has to be guarded against, and there are ways to do that uh, that we can discuss, but, but that's certainly, as Richard Feynman, uh, Nobel laureate at Caltech, said, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are also the easiest person to fool. <laughs> it's kind of like the analog of the sucker at the poker table. If you don't know who it is in five minutes, you're the sucker. Yeah. Powerful lesson. Powerful lesson. Well, we're going to have to close out the first segment of the show and take a quick commercial break. When we come back, I want to chat with you about some of the pressures on scientists, um, and um, we'll go on from there. But first, uh, this commercial break, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with astrophysicist uh, Dr. Brian Keating. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI-CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers, including the newest in Toronto. Pay only for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. Plus, 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and backup your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash bgm. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash bgm. And receive a $20 credit when you use promo code BGM2019. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with astrophysicist Dr. Brian Keating. So you argue in your book that there's also a problem with the Nobel Prize. Tell us about that. Well, you know, the Nobel Prize was instituted in 1901 based upon the 1896 uh, will of Alfred Nobel going into effect, which was brought upon by his his death. <laughs> and so he created what I call the most famous will in human history, which was to bequeath financial remuneration upon peacemakers, scientists, poets, uh, etc. And that vision of how money could be used as an incentive to improve the human condition via the the uh, work towards progress in, in peace and work in literature is is slightly more nebulous than what he wanted for the chemistry, physics, and medical prizes. There's, so there were five prizes originally. 
uh, decades, you know, many decades after he died, the Nobel Committee tried to add another Nobel Prize in economics, uh, but the estate of Alfred Nobel, uh, you know, kind of some of his heirs, although he had no uh, children or, or wife, he nevertheless had some great nephew, and uh, one of them sued the Nobel Committee or, you know, engaged in threatening, uh, you know, accusations that they had distorted the Nobel name, and so now they had to change the name, so the Nobel Prize in economics doesn't exist. It's called the Swedish. Central Bank Prize in honor of Alfred Nobel, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, hmm. but it just shows you one of the many ways that the Nobel Prize is distorted today from what Alfred Nobel wanted back in the 1890s. Now, uh, <clears throat> what I claim in my book is that although it did have positive effects in some sense to motivate me to do stuff, there are a lot of negative impact of the Nobel Prize throughout history and you know just a smattering of recent of uh, recent news headlines can convince most people that this is probably the case i mean just in the last week we've heard about you know greta thunberg as a candidate for the nobel prize um, and then we've heard about donald trump as a candidate for the nobel prize in peace uh, we've heard about you know a tragic suicide of of an economist uh, Professor Weitzman, who did not win the Nobel Prize or the Economics Prize the, uh, that I mentioned a few minutes ago. He didn't win it last year. And, and part of the reason, according to the New York Times and, and his co- close colleagues, that he committed suicide was that he didn't win the Nobel Prize and he felt his best work was behind him. I think that's quite tragic. And I think it shows how much the Nobel Prize has strayed from what Alfred Nobel wanted. He never wanted it to be for, you know, publicity or for, you know, commemoration, greatest hits or whatever. He clearly stated that it should go to one single person who in the preceding year had an invention or discovery that had the greatest benefit to mankind. And the perfect exemplar of that was the very first Nobel Prize in physics to uh, to Willem Rentgen, who invented what later became the X-ray machine. So he discovered X-rays and applied them to medical applications almost immediately, which had a tremendous benefit. I mean, we're still using that invention to this very day. Unlike, say, the 1912 Nobel Prize to Gustave Dahlen, who invented a type of gas regulator for lighthouses and buoys. Uh, and you know, I don't know about you, but you know, I don't use buoys that often to get around town. Uh, and yet it was the winner of the Nobel Prize. Um, there have been other blunders and bloopers, etc. But, uh, but it's become a huge industry, and it's an important part of Sweden's national identity. And the problem is that it's taken on a life far outside of Sweden. In that, you know, we now look to Nobel Prize winners for advice about things that aren't in their purview as scientists because of the halo effect that gets bestowed on scientists uh, that are brilliant, like Albert Einstein or uh, William Shockley, you know, for example, was another one who won the Nobel Prize for the uh, as a co-inventor of the transistor. Well, Mr. Shockley, in addition to being a brilliant physicist, also had some extremely strong opinions about eugenics, which is uh, that the, uh, what he called them, Negroes were inferior and they should be encouraged to be self-sterilized. Just mm-hmm. an awful, odious mentality. But the only reason he got so much attention for this and later became a contributor to San Diego's own Nobel Prize sperm bank uh, so there was a there was a there was a sperm bank in Escondido, California. I'm keeping it G-rated. I hope I hope that's okay uh, that I mentioned Please. that. Yeah, but there's uh, it's called the Repository for Germinal Choice, and it was meant to contain. There's a phenomenal book called The Genius Factory, uh, which describes how this the the rise and fall of this of this uh, of this sperm bank that was meant to. 
encourage you know the uh, proliferation of only society's most brilliant people by having Nobel laureates and, and others donate their germinal uh, material so that um, their ch- children of don't uh, you know that they would donate to would then become superior and we'd have a great you know we'd have a great um, you know society based on all these children and there were thousands of uh, potential donors and children that were born and, and in the book the genius factor it's described what became of some of these people and some of these children but Shockley was one of the few who would put his name as Nobel Prize winner on this. Um, again, another type of experiment in, in what we now call eugenics and is largely discredited. So I think you, know, you wouldn't listen to somebody who won a Grammy, right? To, you, know, you wouldn't say, like, I got to get someone who won a Grammy – you know, and and, um, and and first of all, you're also like, why not get an egg? You know, why why is it only from the men? I mean, it's it's, it's sort of outlandish that mm. we put these people on such a high pedestal. Now, part of the reason that there there's only been three women to ever win the Nobel Prize in physics. Yeah, is it is, it, is, is there some obvious discrimination Prize. going on there against women? Or uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think absolutely there is, and and it's you know it's partially systemic and and originates below before the Nobel Prize gets awarded. For example, Donna Strickland, who became the first woman in fifty four years last year to win the Nobel Prize in physics, after San Diego's own Maria Mayer, um, who was the namesake of our physics department here at UCSD, <clears throat> she became the winner, and then she didn't even have a Wikipedia page about her. She wasn't even a full tenured professor. You know, <laughs> by the time she won the, you better believe as soon as she won the Nobel Prize, she was. Uh, and there's many examples of this where, where women have become a victim of a phenomenon called uh, called the Matilda effect, which is where um, women have have their discoveries misattributed to men, either their advisors, in the case of, say, Jocelyn Bell, Lady Jocelyn Bell, or in the case of uh, Rosalind Franklin, they get completely eliminated altogether from history, and Nobel Prizes are given away to to men that you know could not have done the work without these brilliant women working with them. And I think it's I think it's a really uh, you know a detrimental facet of modern science that the Nobel Prize is held in such high esteem, despite the fact that it did motivate me, I've come to see that it has a tremendous number of harms that could be rectified, just as Hollywood has problems. You know, you can't say that, oh, because I didn't win an Oscar, I can't say anything about, you know, sexism in Hollywood or discrimination and and idol worship in these different fields. Of course not. Or I'm not the president of the United States, so I can't criticize Donald Trump. I mean, I hear criticisms of me all the time like that. And I find it quite absurd, but it really proves the point that these 400 or so mostly men in Sweden have this huge impact on the way that science is perceived uh, amidst the general public. And it, and it influences the career choices, funding decisions, promotion, etc. of innumerable young scientists around the world. Okay, so we got to move on. That's yeah. a sad story. One of the things you talked to me about before the show was that you wanted to talk about the multiverse. Yeah. Uh, that's a fascinating topic to me. I've read a, a little bit about that. Um, basically, let me give a kind of a, a pave the way here. Um, the, the universe is apparently well designed for life. Apparently very well designed for life. If a few of the parameters of the design of the universe were different, uh, life could not have formed. And so scientists have been struggling with why that is. Superstring theory comes along and says there might be a lot more universes, the multiverse. There might be so many universes that it's okay that we have one universe out of 
many, many, many that statistically just happens to support life. And so the this so-called anthropic principle is solved. You know, it's just a statistical thing, and here we are. But both sides of that argument are difficult. So there are some proponents by scientists who are uh, theologians as well, like John Polkinghorne and Paul Davies, who maintain that the universe is the way it is because of uh, design. And there are scientists who say, no, 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 we can't depend on that. We have to treat the universe as as a entity that evolved on its own without any uh, outside assistance. So these two competing views are continuing in our literature and our science. Tell me about this conflict or this tension and your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think it's a very fascinating thing. So I did a, a video, which is called What's a Greater Leap of Faith, God, or the Multiverse, in which I ask this question, and I ask uh, you know people to consider the theological overtones of this debate, which aren't new. Cosmology has always evoked images of God and, and religion alongside with atheism and humanism, etc. <clears throat> and that owes itself way back to the you know, ancient Greeks. But I was surprised to see how many people took the seriousness of the multiverse to the degree that uh, really, in my mind, is not scientific. And some of this came about from one of the fathers of the multi- modern version of the multiverse. The multiverse has been around for thousands of years, it turns out, according to Tom Siegfried, who wrote a book called The Number of the Heavens, which I'm having a review of in Physics Today in a couple of months. Uh, it's a very interesting book, and, and he goes through the different classifications. It turns out there's more than one kind of multiverse. There's a multiverse that you could say is, is stands in the same way to our universe as our uh, as our galaxy does to the many other galaxies there are in the universe, or our sun, or our planet does to the other examples in the universe. Uh, so why not continue this kind of Copernican reasoning and say that the universe is not all there is. There could be a multiverse. In other words, there could be more than one universe. In fact, according to many, there could be an infinite number of universes that exist parallel to ours in the super space of all events that could potentially occur in what's called you know, space-time or the megaverse. Um, so our universe is typically referring to what we can observe, our observable universe. But can we ever so people, can we ever observe the multiverse phenomena? Some people argue that well, because we can't observe it, it's not science. Yeah, exactly. So if if it is impossible to observe the multiverse, then I would say I would agree with that because that would be like saying you know that ten thousand years ago there was a purple unicorn on Neptune. Uh, now, that could be a consequence of another theory, they'll say, and they'll say if that other theory is correct, say the you know, purple unicorn machine is discovered. But in the case of the, the multiverse, there are people that, that claim, and these are the originators of is the modern version, you know, since the discovery of the inflationary you know, universe, the prediction of the inflationary universe, there are people, most notably uh, Professor Andre Linde, who is a very, very prestigious professor at Stanford University, and he's gone on record uh, you know, of saying that he has as much confidence and faith in the multiverse that he would, uh, that he would bet his life on its reality, which is something amazing. Because as you say, if you can't observe it… Nobody can it, prove it. You know, <laughs> so he's safe. Can prove it. Now, there are people that say… Uh, right. There are people that say, well, there are signatures that you could see, 
We don't see them, but if the multiverse existed, uh, we the observation of these could prove the multiverse. But you can't falsify the multiverse, um, you know, because it's 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 all encompassing, and you may uh, admit many many other types of solutions to the to this to this co- uh, theory of cosmology. An infinite number of them would have properties radically different than our universe. An infinite number of them would have exactly the same properties as our universe. So the problem comes down to this question of infinity and how we reconcile you know what is the number of uni- minimum number of universes in order to have a duplicate of ourselves for example that's a very interesting question that max tegmark has has looked into at mit but in my opinion there is a parallel as i say in my video there's a parallel between you know kind of the fervor the faith the that adherence to both theology and you know I'm on record as being you know a devout practicing agnostic. So you know I attend services, but I don't you know I don't have the con- conventional belief in the literal you know designer, as you say, of the universe and, and the classical intelligent design sense. Creationist. I'm not a young earther. <laughs> yeah, but but in terms of like, well, can you investigate and gather data in order to prove or refute scientific you know hypotheses that have relevancy to religion? I'm very interested in those questions. And I think it's I think it's a it's a very um, appropriate thing to study, and it, to me it's very fascinating. And it's troubling when people you know say that scientists never believe in things. That you know, I mean, I have a a quote that popped up yesterday from Neil deGrasse Tyson where he says, you know, I you know, do I believe in global warming? You know, it's he says I believe in it the same way I believe in gravity. Well, I would prefer he says I have evidence for it. You know, we have evidence for 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 evolution. We don't need to believe in it. Right, believe has come to mean my opinion, rather yes. than have a, a, a sound approach based on evidence. Yes. 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 Exactly. Well, guess what? We're out of time. <laughs> okay, it always goes so fast. Uh, yeah, it does. Um, I want to ask you two things before we close. Uh, how can listeners contact you if they want to ask you more questions? And uh, you're doing a bit of a promotion if they do contact you. Oh, yeah. So I'm very active on Twitter and YouTube. So my Twitter and YouTube handles are both the same. It's Dr. Dr. Brian Keating, D-R-B-R-I-A-N-K-E-A-T-I-N-G. Uh, most active there on YouTube and Twitter. I put out a scientific explainer video or book review. Try to do that one about once a week uh, in between running and managing different cosmology experiments. And then I have a mailing list where I send out uh, a lot of you know kind of giveaways and contests and stuff, mostly related to you know the kind of villain of my book, which is Cosmic Dust. And uh, I talk a lot about that and how dust is really essential, vital. In the in the words of, of many people to our existence, and that's at uh, do, uh, that's at brianKeating.com. And if you sign up for my mailing list, and you use as your last name, it'll ask you for your first name, last name, and email. If you use your last name, background mode, uh, all one word or two words, I don't care. Uh, when you sign up for my mailing list, I will randomly select five listeners to receive a genuine piece of space dust in the form of a 4.3 billion year old meteorite from the pre uh, uh, pre Earth solar system uh, that crashed to Earth not too long ago. And I'll send some information along with that to five lucky new subscribers. Cool. Well, Brian, thank you for joining me on the show. It's been a great tour of your career and bicep and the Nobel Prize and the multi the multiverse. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, John. It's always a pleasure. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed the show. You've been listening to Dr. Brian Keating, astrophysicist, and John Marchalero on Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>